Hi and welcome to Terra Dot's Climate Podcast. Focusing on developing countries, we hope to cover a wide range of issues relating to climate change, biodiversity, conservation and many more. Today's guest is Prasenjit Yadav. Prasenjit is a molecular ecologist turned national geographic photographer and explorer. He is one of the very few photographers who integrates science deeply into his photo stories. His previous projects have bring light on sensitive issues such as climate change and its effects on high elevation in the Himalayas. Similarly, a project on how windmills affect surrounding ecosystems raises questions about how green is our green energy. He is a founder member of Shoot for Science, which is an initiative to train scientists in science communication. I am Kirti Manjan and I'll be your host for today. Hi Prasenjit, welcome to our show. We are delighted to have you with us. I am going to get started by asking you this. Can you tell us a little bit more about how your career reached this path? You were a molecular ecologist. How did you get from there to becoming a storyteller? First of all, thank you for having me here today. In the hindsight, I can always say that I knew what I was doing, but in the reality, I did not. I was just doing things that at that very point I found interesting. I grew up at my father's farm which is in middle of a jungle so I was always very close to nature we still have like tigers and leopards coming and moving around our farm so people go to tiger reserves to experience wilderness I just used to step out of my house <laughs> and fast forward I became a molecular biologist figured out ways to integrate ecology into molecular biology found this lab in Bangalore Dr. Ruma Ramakrishnan's lab where they were doing molecular ecology started working there and after spending a couple of years I was always intrigued in, and I think I always had that basic scientific temperament so I didn't feel that I was in a wrong place I felt like that is something I really really enjoy doing and I think I spent enough time to learn the ways of science but that was the time i also realized that there's this big gap that exists between the scientific and the non-scientific community and over time i also realized that as much as i enjoyed doing academics as much as i enjoyed doing pure science i enjoyed communicating that science even more i was engaging mm-hmm. with with managers i was engaging with local forest department people villagers I was engaging with people who were completely unknown about the field I was working with and it started giving me joy that I enjoy telling the story of science as much as doing the science itself so I think that was the turning point at one fine morning I I took a call to take a sabbatical and figure out ways to tell these science stories to larger audiences being a photographer all my life I was always intrigued by this idea of this device which can take a moment from time and give it to infinity so i was like hey here are these two things one is i like to and i want to communicate science and i'm interested in photography so is there a way i can use visual medium to tell these science stories and that six months sabbatical never ended seven years down the line i'm standing in front of you speaking and interacting with you right now It sounds amazing. It sounds really amazing. I want to talk about your National Geographic grant next and you produce a story on the evolution of species in the Shola Sky Islands of the Western Ghats. It was published, exhibited at the National Center for Biological Sciences among other places. Tell us more about that whole experience of being a nature explorer 
and navigating through the challenges the story presented in that sense yeah this was a time when i had just stepped out of academics for a year i worked with bbc on their blue chip film series i was a researcher on that and a local producer and i felt that those stories were compiling but i wanted to tell our stories in our own way in our own language in our own understanding from our own perspective and that's when i got to know about this explorers grant that geographic was offering and and some of the people i knew started recommending me for that and this was back in time when no one knew about this that grant program was quite young and very few people had applied for it so i had no background and no contacts i was like it's a stone it's a attempt i'm going to make the worst that's going to happen is i won't get it sure thought that i'll just attempt for it made me apply for it and and surprisingly i got that grant i got that funding and they named me as national geographic explorer back in 2014 and suddenly i was in this space where i had a small pool of money it wasn't huge but it was my money to go out and do whatever i wanted to do about a story that i had pitched i felt extremely empowered that i have this money and one of the biggest and the most influential brands in the world storytelling brands in the world is like here's the money go and tell us what you bring back so it was supposed to be a 6 months project it ended up becoming a two and a half year long affair i would say <laughs> and the story was about sky islands and how mountains played role in formation of new species i collaborated with dr robin vijayan and dr ruma ramakrishnan a lot of that research was happening in my previous lab so i wasn't completely unaware of it and yeah it, it came out as a photo story which eventually got published in national geographic but i think i owe a lot of my career to that project where i knew nothing about and i was figuring out how to maneuver around the obstacles understanding the world of storytelling learning more and more about visual storytelling i think that was a turning moment for my career and in two and a half years what kind of challenges were there was it how you present scientific evidence or was it more about physical challenges itself i would be curious to know it was all of it first was to get people to accept the notion of you can use camera to tell science stories because that was unheard mm. of back then at least in in the indian ecological wildlife naturalist storytelling scenario where people were like this guy just quit potential phd from national center for biological sciences and he is trying to become a photographer what is he going to do be a wedding photographer i got asked asked mm. by many people what are you doing <laughs> so i think that was one challenge that no there is a way you can take a scientific project understand it distill the most important points out of it use pictures to tell that science story without compromising the integrity of the science that it holds and i was learning it i just knew what i want to do i had no clue how to do it so that was a challenge getting people to believe in what i was doing was another tricky part but fortunately with the collaborators i had they gave me a free hand dr robin dr ruma they were like okay we don't know anything about this we know you we believe in you just do your thing and the support that came from national geographic helped a lot because suddenly i wasn't another kid who was with a camera 
people were like, no, no, no. He has some reputation. Some of the biggest brands are behind him. I think that helped a lot. What was tricky was mm-hmm. to understand how the Indian scenario, how Indian bureaucracy works. That is getting the right permits to get to the places, letting people know that this is not a commercial project. It's not like I'm making a film for National Geographic Channel and making millions out of it. This is a grant project. There's little money. And all of those things were difficult. Now, being in the field, I can't think of any difficult part because that is what I crave for. Yeah. When people think of photographers going out and doing field work and all, they think that all we do is be out there and and take photos and experience wildlife. I think 60 or 70% of our work is sitting in front of the desk. And then remaining 30% is the real cool stuff. So I don't have any complaints about it. It was difficult, of course, right. but all I remember are beautiful memories from that time. It sounds amazing. Sounds such a brilliant experience, really. So now I happen to read about your fantastic experiences with snow leopards. My God, the story on Nadjeo mentioned, and I read about your own very snow leopard. I'm extremely curious about this. They're such beautiful, magnificent creatures. So I had some questions about the whole story in terms of what threats are snow leopards facing. There was a mention of a livestock insurance program which in relation to snow leopards, as well as the whole area itself. So how effective has that been? And what is the government doing, if anything at all, in terms of protecting them? And the last one is, I happened to read that you were trying to capture an image of the female snow leopard and her cubs. So I would love to know if that happened eventually. Yeah, this project was was quite special and, and I think it has changed me as a person. So after I quit my academic career where I was working on tigers, I had decided I wouldn't work on charismatic species. There's enough of attention towards them. And I built my storytelling career by picking these lesser known species like a small lizard or a small drab looking bird, frogs, which people in their conventional mindset, do not think of as charismatic. But what I tried to do was to bring those species in front of people's eyes and tell the story of these species and be like, you know what, the bird might not look charismatic, but the story it has to tell is quite charismatic. And it worked in my favor for a while because for the first time in a brand like National Geographic, in an organization like National Geographic, when I went for the first time to tell stories from India, They were like, this is the first time someone is coming back from India and not telling stories about Tiger Temple and Taj Mahal. And I was like, yeah, India has so much more to offer. But eventually, I couldn't escape from the charismatic species. National Geographic back in 2017 offered me and and I got a funding through my collaborators to do a story about mountain goats. And that was, again, not about snow leopards. I worked on it for eight months. I went back to National Geographic, showed my editor's photos and and story. And the editor was like, go back and shoot snow leopards. I was like, okay, here (laughs) I am working on another charismatic species. But this species is different. Snow leopards are different than the other known charismatic species because everyone knows about it. And it has this mythical and magical feeling around it. But at the same time, people know so little about this species. So I took that up as a challenge and I wanted to go out in the mountains. I got funding and Geographic offered me to do this story. So I was like the most influential 
storytelling magazine in the world offers your story, you don't take it lightly. So I just moved into the mountains. I was like, I'm not doing this coming back, going there, helicopter storytelling. I just moved into the one of the remotest villages in the Himachal Pradesh. And I lived there for a span of 16 months over two and a half years. And the idea of this story was not to tell how charismatic Snow Leopard is. The idea was to tell that although it is charismatic, it is facing more or less the same issues that any other big cat in the world is facing, like tiger, leopard, jaguar, or lion. So little about Snow Leopard, so we think that probably it is doing fine. And that's how this story started. But you asked about the issues that snow leopards are facing. It is facing the same yeah. issues. Although low intensities, humans are all around in, in their landscape, in their entire distribution. So there is constant tussle between humans and the snow leopards. They are facing the brunt of climate change as well. And, and I'll speak more about it eventually. Along with that, snow leopards have this tension going on with the livestock because they depredate livestock, which in turn triggers humans. So there is this tension between domestic goats, wild goats, snow leopards, and humans. And it's interesting how certain NGOs as well as government are trying to reduce that tension. It is going to increase over time because human population is increasing. And from the studies, it looks like snow leopard population is increasing too because of better conservation practices. So how I look at it, that tension is going to increase. What is more important is what are the solutions that people are finding to address those issues. And one of those issues is the insurance plan that you mentioned about. Yeah. So Snow Leopard Trust is based in Seattle, but they work with Nature Conservation Foundation in India. And there are the, there's Dr. Charudat Mishra and Dr. Kulbushan Singh Suryavanshi, who have been the flag bearers of this program. So what Dr. Charu did back in late 90s and early 2000s is that he worked with this community in a village community in Spiti Valley and he helped them develop their own insurance program where people are insuring their own cattle among the community and then whatever the losses are, are bared by everyone together and not by one individual. At the same time, Snow Leopard Trust and other NGOs and government also feeds in money to this insurance program and it seems like it is working because I've spent enough time in those villages and in that district and I've seen that people are benefiting from this insurance program. At the same time, it is helping change their perception towards this big cat. I've spoken to really old people, those who live there, and they were like, 30 years ago, Snow Leopards was a pest for us because our livestock, that is sheep or goat or horses or yaks, are source of protein and they are very close to us. They are money for us. They are our livelihood. And this big cat would come and take them away. So, of course, uh, snow leopard was an issue. But over time, people have changed their perception. They know that their losses will be compensated, one. And two is they also see that snow leopard brings in some other, other amount of tourism. So, they have started respecting snow leopard from that perspective. But again, I have to say this, that this is happening in few pockets, right? few villages around the world where there is tourism introduced, but all the other places, this thing is yet to happen. So you see this as a model, but not as a solution at this point. It has to be scaled up where it becomes a solution. 
What is the government doing in terms of protections? Well, government is working and like Project Tiger, there is a push towards formation of Project Snow Leopard and there is funding coming in. It's just that how much of a government wants to work on this, the reality of the Himalayan landscape is quite difficult. Right. There are these villages which are so isolated that it takes weeks, it takes seven, seven days just to walk to get to those places. And if a person there is loses five sheep or five goat overnight or over a span of one week, there's no way for that person to explain and tell or connect with the government in time to get benefited by the compensation programs. And I think that is the tricky bit where even if government wants to help, they are as helpless as any other person. Right. And my last question was actually about, did you manage to capture the female and her cubs on film by any chance? I think the January, when I went there, is when I knew that, oh, there's a female with three cubs. And I was like, okay, I have only two or three months left to finish my assignment for geographic. And I wanted to focus all my attention towards getting a photo or a video of this female with three cubs. And I moved all my camera traps in the landscape where I knew she was moving, where the, her activity was, where those cubs were. And unfortunately, COVID hit. I got evacuated out of the Malayas. And fortunately, one of my camera traps kept on working for another two months. So I haven't seen, but I've got to know that that one video trap have captured the female and three cubs literally playing in front of the camera for a couple of minutes, coming in and pecking the camera and all of that. So I know that I've gotten the video, but I haven't seen it. And I can't tell you how difficult it is to know that it is there in a hard drive and I haven't seen it yet. Right. (laughs) So you mentioned tourism. And in the article I read, we also talked about how one tourist was caught trying to climb down a ravine to try and get a closer image of the snow leopard. When you have those kind of cases, and is over-tourism a problem, or is it just that people are rather over-enthusiastic about trying to get in contact with the snow leopard? So that one example is something that we witnessed that day, but the examples like this also, which have come out in the media over the years, the point is not about over-tourism, or the point is not about these one-off exceptional people, those who are careless. The majority of the tourists are quite sensible and they do take care as much as possible and they are aware and they make sure they are not hurting the environment or the species. The problem is not tourism. How I look at it, the problem is the rate at which that tourism is getting introduced in that landscape. Right. And I think that is something we really need to be mindful about because five years ago, there were hardly one or two or three people who would go in that landscape and suddenly this year or last two years, there are hundreds and hundreds of people coming. And this village itself is about like 300, 350 people. You're doubling the number of people who live there for those couple of months. And I think that is getting tricky. Uh, Local people want to address it. They want to make sure that it's not deleterious, but they are trying to do as much as they can. The tourists are mindful about it, but they only can do so much that they can. So how I look at it before I could come to a conclusion or before I could say anything, what I think about tourism, it's being good or bad. I would say that it needs a immediate 
thoughtful socio-economic intervention, people need to understand it before we can speak about it. Right. But of course, it has to be done immediately. It is a point of concern. Right. Okay. I would also like to hear more about the awareness you raised around windmills affecting local lizards. Now, did this raise awareness about how, in the, that sense, our green energy really is? And I'm curious, when you consider the impact of a wind farm versus local lizards, does anyone win in that sense? Or is it more like the wind farm is going to give us employment? It's, you know, the usual benefits are always weighed. Is that always the case? I'm just curious to know more about this. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but from the pattern that we have seen over the last 300 years, any tussle between humans and animals is the animal that is losing. And I hope that change. I hope that changes. But that story was done back in 2013. It was my earlier days of storytelling. And I collaborated with scientists in Indian Institute of Sciences, Dr. Maria Thakur and Amod Samri. And I worked with them for a couple of weeks in that landscape to pull that story together. I gave it to them. I published it in national level uh, outlets. But I haven't been personally involved in taking that story forward. I played a role of pulling that story together and giving that story to the scientists. And they are following it up ahead because Dr. Maria recently published the paper and there's in an international journal. And, and I think it's a conversation which is still ongoing. All right. That's good to know. Can you talk about capturing the once-in-a-lifetime meteor shot, please? That looked so surreal and so out of this world. It, it was fantastic. Was that just luck or, yeah, it's just an amazing shot? Yeah, I knew that meteor will come up in this interview because it comes up in every conversation that I have. <laughs> and a very dear friend of mine, Claire Fischler, who's who's a professor in Georgetown University, she has put this out in the best possible way. She tweeted that, oh, Prasen just spent two and a half years working in the most difficult situations in the world to pull out a most interesting story about snow leopards for the most influential magazine in the world on snow leopards. But still people are going to ask him for that one lucky shot that he got. (laughs) (laughs) I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it because how I look at it, that meteor shot is now like my old friend who grew up becoming this superstar and people come and ask me about, hey, how was the meteor shot when you knew him early in the days? So that's how I look at it. And I'm proud of it that it has paved its own path. What happened is I was working on this Sky Island story and a friend of mine, a very dear friend of mine, Anand, was visiting me from US and we were driving around and I wanted to find this place to tell that these sky islands are not only isolated by deep valleys, but also by urbanization. And, it, and at some point, we found this location and I started my camera at around 1 a.m. It took these time lapses. It's like the camera is programmed to take a photo every 10 seconds and each exposure is 15 seconds. And next morning, when we were reviewing our images, Anand had three or four cameras set up. I had one camera and we realized that we got something out of the world. And that was that meteor photograph. And I did get lucky because I was sleeping. I was definitely, we were the only two people doing that camera trapping and doing that time lapse there. But when I say I get lucky, many of the people from my photography community started 
calling me and be like, hey, you're undermining yourself. It's not like you got lucky. You were there and it's your years of hard work and that's when you got this photo and you don't demean your hard work and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, hang on, guys. I know what I'm talking about. I respect your concern. (laughs) But when I say I got lucky, I mean it. And I didn't get lucky because the meteorite showed up in my photograph, in my camera. I think I got lucky because where it showed up in the frame. If you pull that meteorite out right now in some software, and if if I ask you to put it anywhere in that frame, you wouldn't put it anywhere but where exactly it is. And that is what makes that image very beautiful. It makes it aesthetically balanced and composed. And I think that's why I go out in saying that I really got lucky that I got that picture. Uh, It gives me goosebumps to think of that image, really. I mean, your snow leopards, of course, the way they are, and they're beautiful creatures. And it really comes out. Your photos are extraordinary. And I think it's also because I just think that the reaction to the spread limb is also because it's out of this world, right? It really is. And then I think that's when people's like, something wakes up and they're like, oh my God, how did you get that shot? So sorry about that. (laughs) Asking you the question. (laughs) No, I'm delighted. I I love to speak about it every now and then. So I said, I I like it. It's my old friend. Of course, I'm proud of him. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for that. So you talked about psychoms a bit and there's been an issue that's been raised before on our podcast, right? How do we talk about science to people? How do politicians talk about science? How do we connect the two? And you started up Shoot for Science. So we'd love to hear more about why it got started, what you're up to, and what kind of impact are you seeking to make? Yeah, I think when I stepped out of academics, I knew that I'm stepping out of academics, but not science. The idea was to figure out ways to tell science stories to large audiences and integrate science deeply into the usual storytelling that I wanted to do. So I think Sciencecom has been the backbone of everything and whatever I'm doing. It's just that I'm biased towards ecology and more than conservation ecology and natural history. That's why most of my science stories are biased towards it. But the idea of Shoot for Science came from the fact that it was a couple of years down the line. I was still doing science stories in the country and sharing it and publishing it at international scale. But I felt that, and I still feel that, that in India, we have so many beautiful science stories going on and they never get recognized or appreciated or understood at an international scale because there's no visual media associated with it. So for the longest time, I reached out to my other friends from the Naturalist Wildlife Photography Circuit and requested and, and tried to tell them that, hey, why don't you do this story or that story? And I, I felt that it was difficult for them to comprehend the complicated language of science. And that was a time when I realized that it's it's easier to make a scientist a photographer than to make a photographer science literate. It's not difficult. It's not unheard of. It can be done. It's just that it takes more effort. So the idea of Shoot for Science was to equip scientists with the tool of visual storytelling, but not to make them photographers, but to make them photo literate. So they can go back into their own projects uh, use visual medium to tell their science stories to large audiences. And I think more and more scientists should and can 
use this medium to communicate their science better to larger audiences. And how has it taken off in that sense? Is there something you do as an ongoing project where you are in communication with scientists or is this something that people come and tell you this is what's happened? How does that part work? So what happened is I thought of it as every year or every other year thing, but I realized it was a lot of effort and I had my own project going on as well. So eventually what I'm doing is I'm still engaging with those first batch of people. I'm also engaging with the new batch of people, those who get in touch with. So more than it becoming a workshop, it has become a internal mentorship kind of a program where many of these students as well as scientists are engaging with me and they are telling their science stories. At the same time, what happened is that I started getting called around different institutes in the country as well as abroad to have these workshops and help people tell their science stories better. So I have done a bunch of those. But honestly, with my own personal projects, I haven't gotten enough time to pull and bring it back in a more structured manner. But that is what exactly what I'm working on currently. So hopefully soon we'll have uh, next edition of Shoot for Science. That sounds good. Sounds extremely good. Let's talk about social media and the role it plays. How have you harnessed it to showcase your storytelling? And we would love to hear some examples. Yeah, I think social media is is the thing right now. I mean, everything is on social media, right from politicians to actors to conservationists to photographers to storytellers. Everything is on social media these days. That is where, fortunately, unfortunately, we are even consuming our news from. So social media has become the most influential tool. It is about how you use it. Honestly, from my own personal experience, I have been quite aloof from social media for the longest time. And that's because of the nature of work I do. I spent long amount of times out of connectivity working on these stories, which which demands that intense time and effort. So for all this while, I haven't found enough time to engage on social media much. But last six months of the lockdown has helped me bring my work out on social media and I've realized that there's no magic in it it's not like there's some magic formula of how to communicate your work on social media if your work is good it does get consumed and my social media handles are one of the examples for it because last six months I'm just putting my work out and it's going to a large audiences how I see social media is that it is important in informing people But the action is what is more important after people get informed. So it is the first step, but it can't be the end of, or it can't be the complete solution of it. It is part of the solution. And I think it is playing a very, very integral role in changing our perceptions towards the world around us. Did I answer your question or did I miss out on anything? No, I I asked about how you've harnessed it. And I think you've said that part really well. And I really like the thought process where you're saying that it's not just about you literally just liking your image, right? What you do after that really counts. And which goes well into my next question, which is really about, you know, the quality of the climate change narrative as reported in the media in India. What do you think Indian audiences need to understand much better? And what would you like to change about it? Oh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> but let me look at it in three compartments. The first is, what do I feel about narrative of climate change in Indian media. 
I personally think that Indian media completely ignores climate change. I don't think climate change is even a conversation on the mainstream Indian media. I mean, take example of what's happening right now, today. Mm -hmm. The fact is that we are facing this, the brunt of this pandemic and there are people dying and there are cases increasing, but that's still not a conversation on the mainstream media, which is happening right now. And there's no doubt about it. There's nothing to, to debate about it. It's happening. And still it is getting ignored. Imagine a complex conversation like climate change, which is so long term. I don't think Indian media, mainstream media is, is documenting or even is interested in bringing that up. It is definitely getting documented as well as put out in a very interesting as well as informative manner into the alternate media. And I think that is where I get a lot of my news from as well. But the fact remains the same that alternate media hardly reaches to the masses. And the people in the rural areas, they still don't get the news about what's happening in the larger scale of climate change. So to answer your question, I don't think Indian media forget how. I don't even think that they focus on climate change. Now, the next question of why I think it is important and why why we should know about it. And I have said this before as well. I think India as a country should take this more seriously than any other country on the planet. And the reasons for that is, I know that there might be some small countries, island countries, which might be facing the immediate effect of climate change. There might be places in, in the North and South Poles, which might be facing immediate brunt of, of climate change. But there's no country on our planet which is going to face the real issue or real brunt of climate change from three or four different dimensions like India is going to face. The first one is the fact that 70% of our rainfall comes from the southwest monsoon. Almost 60% of our population is still dependent on agriculture and more than 60% of our cultivated areas are still rain-fed. So although agriculture is not I mean, it, it contributes less than 15% of our GDP. More than half of India is dependent on their livelihood on monsoon. And when monsoon fails, the GDP doesn't change, but the rural areas take a big brunt of this issue. And although there are no studies which shows that climate change is stopping monsoon, there are enough studies out there which shows that it is completely changing the pattern of monsoon. And that's affecting India big time. The second dimension is our melting snow caps. Like we have close to 10,000 glaciers retreating and that's going to affect water security across the northern belt of our country. The third thing that we often forget is that we have like a 7,500 kilometer long coastline where there are like 250, 260 million people who live and their life or that puts them into a vulnerable situation with respect to mean sea level rise. And when you look at these three issues, I mean, they are not mutually exclusive. They are all connected. But when you look at it from the perspective of India's population, which is 1.3 billion, and we are growing at a rate of 15 million every year, I think things are going to get real serious. And I think that is the reason why we really need to worry and think about climate change as the bigger issue than it has been projected at this point. I know it sounds all grim. <sighs> And doom and gloom, I didn't want to make it sound like that. But this is the reality and it, it has to come out. What about 
informed activism. Would you call yourself an activist? Do you think that kind of rhetoric helps as well? When it comes to the larger movement towards conservation and climate change, I think informed activism plays a very vital role in it. But just like social media, I think activism is also a part of the solution. It's not the solution in itself. Mm. I mean, activism has to be informed activism. Otherwise, it's just few people throwing tantrums yeah. if it is not informed. Yeah. So <laughs> like when I think of activism, I only think of informed activism. So I think it is important and it has a vital role to play in it. But as I said, there is a strong power in this world of knowing. It is important that people know about what's happening. It is important that people are aware of it. But what you do with that information is what is more important. So activism is a key thing. And what you do after that is what I think is equally important. Do I see myself as activist? I see myself as a storyteller. And there have been stories which are very much conservation-oriented, which have resulted in smaller level impact. So if you consider that as activism, maybe you can call me activist. But I do see myself as a storyteller because I also do some stories which have nothing to do with conservation, which have nothing to do with changing anything on ground. Those stories are just to bring out the curiosity and wonder of natural history and science to people. So I think a small part of my work is to empower activists so they can go ahead and, and do their job even better. So this brings me to my last question. You talked about what we do after. So then what is your call of action to our listeners? I mean, you can do a lot of things. And I don't want to sound preachy here, but this is something that I tell myself every day, that the first thing that I can do is to be aware and know what is happening out there. I mean, right now we are living in an era where information is available on our fingertips. Like a phone, one Google search, and you'll get N number of sites and number of information about any given topic. So I think it just being responsible about trying to be aware of what's happening. May it be in climate change conversation, may it be in political conversations, may it be any conversation. And I don't think any of these things are mutually exclusive. They are all connected. So I think it is important that we stay informed and then figure out a way how can we be part of the solution. And it's not like I have to be a full-time conservation scientist or a full-time conservation activist or a politician or manager to do this. I can be whatever I am. I can be a restaurant owner. I could be a lawyer. I could be anything and still contribute into the larger conservation movement. And I think that is important. I think that is what I would tell people, that you could be whatever you are. You could keep doing whatever you are doing and still become part of this larger movement. And it is important that we all be part of it because it's ultimately for us. Thank you so much for your insightful answers, President Jeet. I loved all the stories and I'm sure our listeners have to about the snow leopards and your wonderful work that you're doing. Thank you very much again. Thank you for making the time to talk to us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you and I, I hope your listeners enjoy what I said. I think the larger climate change narrative went a little doom and gloom, but I would like to say that it is a situation where we really need to know about things and be part of the solution. So 
Yeah. Thank you for having me here. Thank you so much. Thank you.